Story nine of Youth and the Bright Medusa and the Troll Garden by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story nine Flavia and her Artists, Part two. Summer after summer she had awaited his coming and wept at his departure, indifferent to the gayer young men who had called her their sweetheart and laughed at everything she said. Although Hamilton never said so, she had been always quite sure that he was fond of her. When he pulled her up the river to hunt for fairy knolls shut about by low-hanging willows, he was often silent for an hour at a time, yet she never felt he was bored or was neglecting her. He would lie in the sand, smoking, his eyes half-closed, watching her play, and she was always conscious that she was entertaining him. Sometimes he would take a copy of Alice in Wonderland in his pocket, and no one could read it as he could, laughing at her with his dark eyes when anything amused him. No one else could laugh so, with just their eyes, and without moving a muscle of their face. Though he usually smiled at passages that seemed not at all funny to the child, she always laughed gleefully, because he was so seldom moved to mirth that any such demonstration delighted her, and she took the credit of it entirely to herself. Her own inclination had been for serious stories, with sad endings, like The Little Mermaid, which he had once told her in an unguarded moment, when she had a cold, and was put to bed early on her birthday night, and cried because she could not have her party. But he highly disapproved of this preference, and had called it a morbid taste and always shook his finger at her when she asked for the story. When she had been particularly good, or particularly neglected by other people, then he would sometimes melt and tell her the story, and never laugh at her if she enjoyed the sad ending even to tears. When Flavia had taken him away, and he came no more, she wept inconsolably for the space of two weeks, and refused to learn her lessons. Then she found the story of the little mermaid herself, and forgot him. Imogen had discovered at dinner that he could still smile at one secretly, out of his eyes, and that he had the old manner of outwardly seeming bored, but letting you know that he was not. She was intensely curious about his exact state of feeling toward his wife, and more curious still to catch a sense of his final adjustment to the conditions of life in general. This she could not help feeling she might get again, if she could have him alone for an hour, in some place where there was a little river and a sandy cove bordered by drooping willows, and a blue sky seen through white sycamore boughs. That evening, before retiring, Flavia entered her husband's room, where he sat in his smoking-jacket in one of his favorite low chairs. I suppose it's a grave responsibility to bring an ardent, serious young thing like Imogen here among all these fascinating personages, she remarked reflectively, but after all, one can never tell. These grave, silent girls have their own charm, even for facile people. Oh, so that is your plan, queried her husband dryly. I was wondering why you got her up here. She doesn't seem to mix well with the faciles. At least, so it struck me. Flavia paid no heed to this jeering remark, but repeated, No, after all, it may not be a bad thing. 
"'Then do consign her to that shaken reed, the tenor,' said her husband, yawning. "'I remember she used to have a taste for the pathetic.' "'And then,' remarked Flavia coquettishly, "'after all, I owe her mother a return in kind. She was not afraid to trifle with destiny.' But Hamilton was asleep in his chair. Next morning Imogen found only Miss Broadwood in the breakfast-room. "'Good morning, my dear girl. Whatever are you doing up so early?' "'They never breakfast before eleven. Most of them take their coffee in their room. Take this place by me.' Miss Broadwood looked particularly fresh and encouraging in her blue serge walking-skirt, her open jacket displaying an expanse of stiff white shirt-bosom, dotted with some almost imperceptible figure, and a dark blue-and-white necktie neatly knotted under her wide rolling collar. She wore a white rosebud in the lapel of her coat, and decidedly she seemed more than ever like a nice clean boy on his holiday. Imogen was just hoping that they would breakfast alone when Miss Broadwood exclaimed, "'Ah, here comes Arthur with the children. That's the reward of early rising in this house. You never get to see the youngsters at any other time.' Hamilton entered, followed by two dark, handsome little boys. The girl, who was very tiny, blonde like her mother, and exceedingly frail, he carried in his arms. The boys came up and said good morning, with an ease and cheerfulness uncommon, even in well-bred children, but the little girl hid her face on her father's shoulder. "'She's a shy little lady,' he explained, as he put her gently down in her chair. "'I'm afraid she's like her father. She can't seem to get used to meeting people.' "'And you, Miss Willard, did you dream of the white rabbit or the little mermaid?' "'Oh, I dreamed of them all. All the personages of that buried civilization,' cried Imogen, delighted that his estranged manner of the night before had entirely vanished, and feeling that, somehow, the old confidential relations had been restored during the night. "'Come, William,' said Miss Broadwood, turning to the younger of the two boys, and what did you dream about? We dreamed, said William gravely, he was the more assertive of the two, and always spoke for both, we dreamed that there were fireworks hidden in the basement of the carriage-house, lots and lots of fireworks. His elder brother looked up at him with apprehensive astonishment, while Miss Broadwood hastily put her napkin to her lips, and Hamilton dropped his eyes. If little boys dream things, they are so apt not to come true, he reflected sadly. This shook even the redoubtable William, and he glanced nervously at his brother. But do things vanish just because they have been dreamed, he objected. Generally that is the very best reason for their vanishing, said Arthur gravely. But, father, people can't help what they dream, remonstrated Edward gently. "'Oh, come! You're making these children talk like a Maeterlinck dialogue,' laughed Miss Broadwood. Flavia presently entered, a book in her hand, and bade them all good morning. "'Come, little people, which story shall it be this morning?' she asked winningly. Greatly excited, the children followed her into the garden. "'She does, then, sometimes,' murmured Imogen, as they left the breakfast-room. 
"Oh yes, to be sure," said Miss Broadwood, cheerfully. "She reads a story to them every morning in the most picturesque part of the garden the mother of the Graeci, you know. She does so long, she says, for the time when they will be intellectual companions for her. What do you say to a walk over the hills?" As they left the house they met Frau Lichtenfeld and the bushy Herr Schott. The professor cut an astonishing figure in golf stockings, returning from a walk and engaged in an animated conversation on the tendencies of German fiction. "'Aren't they the most attractive little children?' exclaimed Imogen, as they wound down the road toward the river. "'Yes, and you must not fail to tell Flavia that you think so. She will look at you in a sort of startled way and say, "'Yes, aren't they?' and maybe she will go off and hunt them up and have tea with them to fully appreciate them. She is awfully afraid of missing anything good, is Flavia. The way those youngsters manage to conceal their guilty presence in the house of song is a wonder. But don't any of the artist folk fancy children? asked Imogen. Yes, they just fancy them, and no more. The chemist remarked the other day that children are like certain salts which need not be actualized because the formulae are quite sufficient for practical purposes. I don't see how even Flavia can endure to have that man about. I have always been rather curious to know what Arthur thinks of it all, remarked Imogen cautiously. Thinks of it? ejaculated Miss Broadwood. Why, my dear, what would any man think of having his house turned into an hotel, inhabited by freaks who discharge his servants, borrow his money, and insult his neighbors. This place is shunned like a lazaretto. "'Well, then, why does he—why does he—' persisted Imogen. "'Bah!' interrupted Miss Broadwood impatiently. "'Why did he in the first place? That's the question.' "'Marry her, you mean?' said Imogen, coloring. "'Exactly so,' said Miss Broadwood sharply, as she snapped the lid of her matchbox. "'I suppose that is a question rather beyond us, and certainly one which we cannot discuss,' said Imogen. "'But his toleration on this one point puzzles me, quite apart from other complications.' "'Toleration? Why, this point, as you call it, simply is Flavia. Who could conceive of her without it?' I don't know where it's all going to end, I'm sure, and I'm equally sure that, if it were not for Arthur, I shouldn't care," declared Miss Broadwood, drawing her shoulders together. But will it end at all, now? Such an absurd state of things can't go on indefinitely. A man isn't going to see his wife make a guy of herself forever, is he? Chaos has already begun in the servants' quarters. There are six different languages spoken there now. You see, it's all on an entirely false basis. Flavia hasn't the slightest notion of what these people are really like. Their good and their bad alike escape her. They, on the other hand, can't imagine what she is driving at. Now Arthur is worse off than either faction. He is not in the fairy story in that he sees these people exactly as they are, but he is utterly unable to see Flavia as they see her. There you have the situation. Why can't he see her as we do? My dear, that has kept me awake o' nights. This man who has thought so much and lived so much, and who is naturally a critic, really takes Flavia at very nearly her own estimate. 
but now I am entering upon a wilderness. From a brief acquaintance with her you can know nothing of the icy fastnesses of Flavia's self-esteem. It's like St. Peter's. You can't realize its magnitude at once. You have to grow into a sense of it by living under its shadow. It has perplexed even Emile Roux, that merciless dissector of egoism. She has puzzled him the more, because he saw at a glance what some of them do not perceive at once, and what will be mercifully concealed from Arthur until the trump sounds, namely, that all Flavia's artists have done, or ever will do, means exactly as much to her as a symphony means to an oyster, that there is no bridge by which the significance of any work of art could be conveyed to her. Then, in the name of goodness, why does she bother? gasped Imogen. She is pretty, wealthy, well-established. Why should she bother? That's what Monsieur Roux has kept asking himself. I can't pretend to analyze it. She reads papers on the literary landmarks of Paris, the loves of the poets, and that sort of thing, to clubs out in Chicago. To Flavia it is more necessary to be called clever than to breathe. I would give a good deal to know that glum Frenchman's diagnosis. He has been watching her out of those fishy eyes of his, as a biologist watches a hemisphereless frog. For several days after Monsieur Roux's departure, Flavia gave an embarrassing share of her attention to Imogen. Embarrassing, because Imogen had the feeling of being energetically and futilely explored, she knew not for what. She felt herself under the globe of an air-pump, expected to yield up something. When she confined the conversation to matters of general interest, Flavia conveyed to her with some pique that her one endeavour in life had been to fit herself to converse with her friends upon those things which vitally interested them. One has no right to accept their best from people unless one gives, isn't it so? I want to be able to give, she declared vaguely. Yet whenever Imogen strove to pay her tithes and plunged bravely into her plans for study next winter, Flavia grew absent-minded and interrupted her by amazing generalizations or by such embarrassing questions as, and these uh, grim studies really have charm for you? You are quite buried in them? They make other things seem light and ephemeral. I rather feel as though I had got in here under false pretenses, Imogen confided to Miss Broadwood. I'm sure I don't know what it is that she wants of me. Ah, chuckled Jemima, you are not equal to these heart-to-heart -heart talks with Flavia. You utterly fail to communicate to her the atmosphere of that untroubled joy in which you dwell. You must remember that she gets no feeling out of things herself, and she demands that you impart yours to her by some process of psychic transmission. I once met a blind girl, blind from birth, who could discuss the peculiarities of the Barbizon school with just Flavia's glibness and enthusiasm. Ordinarily Flavia knows how to get what she wants from people, and her memory is wonderful. One evening I heard her giving Frau Lichtenfeld some random impressions about Hedda Gobbler, which she extracted from me five years ago, giving them with an impassioned conviction of which I was never guilty. 
but i have known other people who could appropriate your stories and opinions flavia is infinitely more subtle than that she can soak up the very thrash and drift of your daydreams and take the very thrills off your back as it were after some days of unsuccessful effort flavia withdrew herself and imogen found hamilton ready to catch her when she was tossed afield he seemed only to have been awaiting this crisis and at once their old intimacy re-established itself as a thing inevitable and beautifully prepared for she convinced herself that she had not been mistaken in him despite all the doubts that had come up in later years and this renewal of faith set more than one question thumping in her brain how did he how can he she kept repeating with a tinge of her childish resentment what right had he to waste anything so fine when imogen and arthur were returning from a walk before luncheon one morning about a week after monsieur roux's departure they noticed an absorbed group before one of the hall windows herr schott and resthoff sat on the window-seat with a newspaper between them while wellington schmetzken and will maidenwood looked over their shoulders they seemed intensely interested herr schott occasionally pounding his knees with his fist in ebullitions of barbaric glee when imogen entered the hall however the men were all sauntering toward the breakfast-room and the paper was lying innocently on the divan during luncheon the personnel of that window group were unwontedly animated and agreeable all save schmetzken whose stare was blanker than ever as though rue's mantle of insulting indifference had fallen upon him in addition to his own oblivious self-absorption will maidenwood seemed embarrassed and annoyed the chemist employed himself with making polite speeches to hamilton flavia did not come down to lunch and there was a malicious gleam under herr schott's eyebrows frank wellington announced nervously that an imperative letter from his protecting syndicate summoned him to the city after luncheon the men went to the golf links and imogen at the first opportunity possessed herself of the newspaper which had been left on the divan one of the first things that caught her eye was an article headed rue on tuft hunters the advanced american woman as he sees her aggressive superficial and insincere the entire interview was nothing more or less than a satiric characterization of flavia a quiver with irritation and vitriolic malice no one could mistake it it was done with all his deftness of portraiture imogen had not finished the article when she heard a footstep and clutching the paper she started precipitately toward the stairway as arthur entered he put out his hand looking critically at her distressed face wait a moment miss willard he said peremptorily i want to see whether we can find what it was that so interested our friends this morning give me the paper please imogen grew quite white as he opened the journal she reached forward and crumpled it with her hands please don't please don't she pleaded it's something i don't want you to see oh why will you it's just something low and despicable that you can't notice arthur had gently loosed her hands and he pointed her to a chair he lit a cigar and read the article through without comment 
when he had finished it he walked to the fireplace struck a match and tossed the flaming journal between the brass andirons you are right he remarked as he came back dusting his hands with his handkerchief it's quite impossible to comment there are extremes of blackguardism for which we have no name the only thing necessary is to see that flavia gets no wind of this this seems to be my cue to act poor girl imogen looked at him tearfully she could only murmur oh why did you read it hamilton laughed spiritlessly come don't you worry about it you always took other people's troubles too seriously when you were little and all the world was gay and everybody happy you must needs get the little mermaid's troubles to grieve over come with me into the music-room you remember the musical setting i once made you for the lay of the jabberwock i was trying it over the other night long after you were in bed and i decided it was quite as fine as the earl king music how i wish i could give you some of the cake that alice ate and make you a little girl again then when you had got through the glass door into the little garden you could call to me perhaps and tell me all the fine things that were going on there what a pity it is that you ever grew up he added laughing and imogen too was thinking just that at dinner that evening flavia with fatal persistence insisted upon turning the conversation to monsieur roux she had been reading one of his novels and had remembered anew that paris set its watches by his clock imogen surmised that she was tortured by a feeling that she had not sufficiently appreciated him while she had had him when she first mentioned his name she was answered only by the pall of silence that fell over the company then every one began to talk at once as though to correct a false position they spoke of him with a fervent defiant admiration with the sort of hot praise that covers a double purpose imogen fancied she could see that they felt a kind of relief at what the man had done even those who despised him for doing it that they felt a spiteful hate against flavia as though she had tricked them and a certain contempt for themselves that they had been beguiled she was reminded of the fury of the crowd in the fairy tale when once the child had called out that the king was in his night-clothes surely these people knew no more about flavia than they had known before but the mere fact that the thing had been said altered the situation flavia meanwhile sat chattering amiably pathetically unconscious of her nakedness hamilton lounged fingering the stem of his wine-glass gazing down the table at one face after another and studying the various degrees of self-consciousness they exhibited imogen's eyes followed his fearfully when a lull came in the spasmodic flow of conversation arthur leaning back in his chair remarked deliberately as for monsieur roux his very profession places him in that class of men whom society has never been able to accept unconditionally because it has never been able to assume that they have any ordered notion of taste he and his ilk remain with the mountebanks and snake charmers people indispensable to our civilization but wholly unreclaimed by it people whom we receive but whose invitations we do not accept 
Fortunately for Flavia, this mine was not exploded until just before the coffee was brought. Her laughter was pitiful to hear. It echoed through the silent room as in a vault, while she made some tremulously light remark about her husband's drollery, grim as a jest from the dying. No one responded, and she sat nodding her head like a mechanical toy, and smiling her white set smile through her teeth, until Alcie Brisson and Frau Lichtenfeld came to her support. After dinner the guests retired immediately to their rooms, and Imogen went upstairs on tiptoe, feeling the echo of breakage and the dust of crumbling in the air. She wondered whether Flavia's habitual note of uneasiness were not, in a manner, prophetic, and a sort of unconscious premonition, after all. She sat down to write a letter, but she found herself so nervous, her head so hot, and her hands so cold, that she soon abandoned the effort. Just as she was about to seek Miss Broadwood, Flavia entered and embraced her hysterically. "'My dearest girl,' she began, was there ever such an unfortunate and incomprehensible speech made before? Of course, it is scarcely necessary to explain to you poor Arthur's lack of tact, and that he meant nothing. But they, can they be expected to understand? He will feel wretchedly about it when he realizes what he has done. But in the meantime, and Monsieur Roux, of all men, when we were so fortunate as to get him, and he made himself so unreservedly agreeable, and I fancied that, in his way, Arthur quite admired him. My dear, you have no idea what that speech has done. Schmetzkin and Herr Schott have already sent me word that they must leave us to-morrow. Such a thing from a host! Flavia paused, choked by tears of vexation and despair. Imogen was thoroughly disconcerted. This was the first time she had ever seen Flavia betray any personal emotion which was indubitably genuine. She replied with what consolation she could. Need they take it personally at all? It was a mere observation upon a class of people which he knows nothing whatever about, and with whom he has no sympathy, interrupted Flavia. Ah, my dear, you could not be expected to understand. You can't realize, knowing Arthur as you do, his entire lack of any aesthetic sense whatever. He is absolutely nil, stone deaf, and stark blind on that side. He doesn't mean to be brutal. It is just the brutality of utter ignorance. They always feel it. They are so sensitive to unsympathetic influences, you know. They know it the moment they come into the house. I have spent my life apologizing for him and struggling to conceal it. But in spite of me he wounds them. His very attitude, even in silence, offends them. Heavens, do I not know? Is it not perpetually and forever wounding me? But there has never been anything so dreadful as this. Never! If I could conceive of any possible motive, even— but surely, Mrs. Hamilton, it was, after all, a mere expression of opinion, such as we are, any of us, likely to venture upon any subject whatever. It was neither more personal nor more extravagant than many of Monsieur Roux's remarks. But Imogen, certainly Monsieur Roux has the right. 
it is a part of his art and that is altogether another matter oh this is not the only instance continued flavia passionately i've always had that narrow bigoted prejudice to contend with it has always held me back but this i think you mistake his attitude replied imogen feeling a flush that made her ears tingle that is i fancy he is more appreciative than he seems a man can't be very demonstrative about those things not if he is a real man i should not think you would care much about saving the feelings of people who are too narrow to admit of any other point of view than their own she stopped finding herself in the impossible position of attempting to explain hamilton to his wife a task which if once begun would necessitate an entire course of enlightenment which she doubted flavia's ability to receive and which she could offer only with very poor grace that's just where it stings most here flavia began pacing the floor it is just because they have all shown such tolerance and have treated arthur with such unfailing consideration that i can find no reasonable pretext for his rancour how can he fail to see the value of such friendships on the children's account if for nothing else what an advantage for them to grow up among such associations even though he cares nothing about these things himself he might realize that is there nothing i could say by way of explanation to them i mean if someone were to explain to them how unfortunately limited he is in these things i'm afraid i cannot advise you said imogen decidedly but that at least seems to me impossible flavia took her hand and glanced at her affectionately nodding nervously of course dear girl i can't ask you to be quite frank with me poor child you are trembling and your hands are icy poor arthur but you must not judge him by this altogether think how much he misses in life what a cruel shock you've had i'll send you some sherry good-night my dear when flavia shut the door imogen burst into a fit of nervous weeping next morning she awoke after a troubled and restless night at eight o'clock miss broadwood entered in a red and white striped bathrobe up up and see the great doom's image she cried her eyes sparkling with excitement the hall is full of trunks they are packing what bolt has fallen it's you ma chérie you've brought ulysses home again and the slaughter has begun she blew a cloud of smoke triumphantly from her lips and threw herself into a chair beside the bed imogen rising on her elbow plunged excitedly into the story of the rue interview which miss broadwood heard with the keenest interest frequently interrupting her with exclamations of delight when imogen reached the dramatic scene which terminated in the destruction of the newspaper miss broadwood rose and took a turn about the room violently switching the tasseled cords of her bathrobe stop a moment she cried you mean to tell me that he had such a heaven-sent means to bring her to her senses and didn't use it that he held such a weapon and threw it away 
"Use it!" cried Imogen unsteadily. "Of course he didn't. He bared his back to the tormentor, signed himself over to punishment in that speech he made at dinner, which every one understands but Flavia. She was here for an hour last night, and disregarded every limit of taste in her maledictions." "My dear," cried Miss Broadwood, catching her hand in inordinate delight at the situation, "do you see what he has done? There'll be no end to it. Why, he has sacrificed himself to spare the very vanity that devours him, put rancors on the vessels of his peace, and his eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man, to make them kings, the seed of Banquo kings. He is magnificent! Isn't he always that? cried Imogen hotly. He's like a pillar of sanity and law in this house of shams and swollen vanities, where people stalk about with a sort of madhouse dignity, each one fancying himself a king or a pope. If you could have heard that woman talk of him! Why, she thinks him stupid, bigoted, blinded by middle-class prejudices. She talked about his having no aesthetic sense, and insisted that her artists had always shown him tolerance. I don't know why it should get on my nerves so, I'm sure, but her stupidity and assurance are enough to drive one to the brink of collapse. Yes, as opposed to his singular fineness, they are calculated to do just that," said Miss Broadwood gravely, wisely ignoring Imogen's tears. But what has been is nothing to what will be. Just wait until Flavia's black swans have flown. You ought not to try to stick it out. That would only make it harder for everyone. Suppose you let me telephone your mother to wire you to come home by the evening train. Anything rather than have her come at me like that again. It puts me in a perfectly impossible position, and he is so fine. Of course it does, said Miss Broadwood sympathetically, and there is no good to be got from facing it. I will stay because such things interest me, and Frau Lichtenfeld will stay because she has no money to get away, and Buisson will stay because he feels somewhat responsible. These complications are interesting enough to cold-blooded folk like myself, who have an eye for the dramatic element, but they are distracting and demoralizing to young people with any serious purpose in life. Miss Broadwood's counsel was all the more generous, seeing that, for her, the most interesting element of this denouement would be eliminated by Imogen's departure. If she goes now, she'll get over it, soliloquized Miss Broadwood. If she stays, she'll be wrung for him, and the hurt may go deep enough to last. I haven't the heart to see her spoiling things for herself. She telephoned Mrs. Willard and helped Imogen to pack. She even took it upon herself to break the news of Imogen's going to Arthur, who remarked, as he rolled a cigarette in his nerveless fingers, "'Right enough, too. What should she do here with old cynics like you and me, Jimmy? Seeing that she is brimful of dates and formulae and other positivisms, and is so girt about with illusions that she still casts a shadow in the sun. You've been very tender of her, haven't you? I've watched you and to think it may all be gone when we see her next. The common fate of all things rare, you know. What a good fellow you are anyway, Jimmy," he added, putting his hands affectionately on her shoulders. 
Arthur went with them to the station. Flavia was so prostrated by the concerted action of her guests that she was able to see Imogen only for a moment in her darkened sleeping-chamber, where she kissed her hysterically, without lifting her head, bandaged in aromatic vinegar. On the way to the station, both Arthur and Imogen threw the burden of keeping up appearances entirely upon Miss Broadwood, who blithely rose to the occasion. When Hamilton carried Imogen's bag into the car, Miss Broadwood detained her for a moment, whispering as she gave her a large, warm hand-clasp, "'I'll come to see you when I get back to town, and in the meantime, if you meet any of our artists, tell them you have left Caius Marius among the ruins of Carthage.'" End of Story 9 Part 2